Right, let's, uh, let's make a start. Um, thank you very much for coming. That, that is a test of the alarm, I gather, so don't panic, um, which hopefully will stop very soon. Um, so this is the final lecture in this series um, on placing Old English in context, and I want to talk a bit about um, Old English manuscripts and um, give you a bit of background about Old English manuscripts, how you find them, etc., etc., and uh, a few things about how they might tie into your study of literature. Um, first of all, just um, one of the things I've been saying about is, is trying to place the, the literature in its context. And obviously that requires a bit of knowledge about archaeology, art manuscripts, but also history, which I've done a basic, basic cover. With students that I, I take tutorials with, um, I take them up to the British Library and the British Museum, um, but I can't do that for everyone. So if you go to the British Library, just by some pancreas, I mean, it's free. It's one of the best free exhibitions in, in London. Uh, they've got a lovely display of really rare manuscripts. Going, it ranges from the Beatles right down to... I can't remember what their earliest manuscript is. But there's a lot of Anglo-Saxon manuscripts on display, and then it's only about a 20-minute walk to the British Museum and look at the artefacts. Um, and what I did last year, I don't know if it's of use, is I did a, a sort of audio tour of what was on display last year. So I can't guarantee they haven't changed the displays. So if you want to download those and you're up in London over the Easter Vac, play them or, but I, I mean, they're really annoying because it's me and I don't know what I'm doing. But anyway, it sort of takes you through and says, look at this manuscript and look at line so-and-so and you'll see some stuff. So it's quite, possibly quite handy. The British Museum hasn't changed for 70 years, probably since the last time they dusted off those displays, but the British Library changes all the time. So, so anyway, so today um, I want to take you through manuscript terminology and how you find old English manuscripts, what to do with them, what not to do with them. Um, some problems to do with authorship, which they, they challenge for us as uh, literature scholars, and then a bit about editions, which are the things you pick up day in, day out, and um, how they come about and why that in, in, in turn might um, make you question some of the things you're, you're reading and studying. So I, I mentioned that uh, um, last week we'd, we'd solve a riddle. Well, it's not really that hard to solve. This is from Crossley Holland's uh, anthology of translations. So page 241, you'll find this riddle. This is just an extract. Classic Old English riddle. Um, Prosopopeia, Peer, the inanimate object is speaking. In this case, it's a book. But what's nice about this riddle is it takes you through step by step how books or manuscripts were made. I'm going to use the term book, but in theory, we, we always deal with manuscripts because everything is handwritten. So an enemy ended my life, deprived me of my physical strength. That's, so some creature or something has been... Killed, then he dipped me in water, drew me out again, put me in the sun where I soon shed all my hair. And after that, a nice edge bit into me and all my blemishes were scraped away. Fingers folded me and so on. So this really is a, is a sort of step-by-step -step guide to making a manuscript. So that's what we're going to have a look at. And we're going to use that to come back again and again to. But first of all, some basic information. There are about 90 manuscripts uh, in total which survive, which really have literary texts, or what I would describe as literary texts. But there's many, many fragments and I'll show you some examples of, of really extreme examples of fragments a bit later. You may think that isn't a lot, and it isn't a lot. We know that there were many other manuscripts um, from that period. There were the great libraries at York, which we know the Vikings burnt down, so we lost a lot of books. We had individual examples. Alfred the Great, when he was a child, um, was, was 
set this challenge with his brothers, whoever could learn the verse being in, in this manuscript that was obviously in the room, got to keep the book, we don't have that book anymore. So we know things went. Things will have been lost, things possibly were stolen, and there is the great fire at Ashburnham House in 1731 where we know we lost a lot of manuscripts from that period. Um, the example which ties into your text um, is the Battle of Molden. Things were reused, as we will see. There is natural damage from things like worms, um, flood damage, etc., um, and all kinds of things which went horribly wrong. The last manuscript with, you would say, with a scribe, a contemporary scribe writing in Old English is the mid-12th century. So it doesn't just stop at 1066, it carries on and people are writing it down. But what we get in the 16th and 17th centuries are people making transcriptions of text. So you do get Anglo-Saxon recorded in much later hands. So let's use our riddle. Um, an enemy ended my life. Okay, so as you probably know, manuscripts are made of the skin of an animal. Um, and we'll talk a bit more about that in a second. Then he dipped me in water and drew me out again and put me in the sun where I soon shed all my hair. And after that, the nice edge bit into me and all my blemishes were scraped away. So what's happening here is the skin is taken from the animal. It is washed. It is then scraped so that the hair side of the animal, all the hairs are removed, so you have two, both sides of the skin and you write on both sides, and it is stretched and cleaned up. Okay? And that's basically how you, you make a manuscript. There is a very good um, website at the top there, you can see, Medstud Manual Mumma, um, which is a nice, it goes on to later medieval manuscript, but it takes you through and it shows you illustrations from manuscripts themselves of scribes preparing manuscripts, but also people reconstructing and showing you how skin was stretched on a frame and so on. When we're looking at this, um, and I'll come back a bit more to the construction itself, there are a few terms which float about, and I suppose we should be trying to be exact on this. Codicology, if you go on to be, become a medievalist, you, this will become more familiar. Codicology is the study of the book and its construction. So it's the type of thing, even in later periods, you would still be looking at how is the book printed, for example, in much later periods, how is it collated, you know, what type of binding is used, what paper is used, and so on. Paleography gets down into the more finer details, and I'll, I'll show you examples of this, where you look at the handwriting, the handwriting of the scribe. But paleography would carry on into a much later period, 20th century, modern day, if you look at the handwriting of someone writing letters. So it's, it's that study as well. I use the term book, but what we should be talking about is a codex, a bound volume. So, hence, code ecology. And, as I said, the leaves themselves are made of parchment. So, this is animal skin, which is treated with lime and pumice stone, cut and stretched. You will often hear the term vellum used. Oh, everyone used vellum. That's not strictly true. Vellum is usually calf skin. And it's actually, strictly speaking, high-quality vellum is an unborn calf skin. But why are they important? Well, I'll give you two examples here. The first one is, is answering to the question, if you remember I said at the very beginning of the lecture series, that these are the dates we're trying to struggle with all the time, and of course the manuscript is this date here. So it's our termination date. It's the last point that that text could have been composed at. So it is possible, and people have argued, that what you are seeing on the manuscript is the author. Beowulf manuscript, is that when the poem was written? Well, that's highly debatable, of course. 
So we need this terminal point, and that's what the manuscript gives us. We know that the text was not written after that point. So all of the evidence we're putting together is important. Okay, a second example here, and I'm going to use a couple of poems just to show you why this might be important, and comes with a short poem called Riddle 60. It's a riddle, an old English riddle, and the husband's message. The husband's message is one of the old English elegies, and it's possibly a response to the wife's lament, and it's really a message coming back from, we think it's a husband, to the wife who is in exile, saying, look, this is why I'm in exile, blood feud, blah, 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 blah but it's all going to get better and there's a lot of consolation, etc. You can read it on a spiritual level. It might be Christ talking back to this Christian soul, but anyway, by the by. Now, the interesting thing is, when we look at the manuscript, it's in the Exeter book, Riddle 60 is a riddle about a rune staff. So a rune staff is a bit of wood that people would have carved in short runic inscriptions as a message. So, you know, rather than that, they didn't send letters, they might have just written, you know, nice to see you, go and get me some veal or whatever and it would have been on that. So, it's very interesting that in the manuscript we have a riddle about a rune staff, and then the next thing is something speaking as if it's carrying a message. Is it just that the people put the two poems together? Well, let's, let's try and see. So, riddle 60, now you won't know this, but it ends with the words, Widor named Manden, and somewhere here, oh, thank you, Okay, so this is the manuscript. Let me get my pointer. So, riddle 60 ends, Widor Nemandum. Win, which is the W, I, D, D, O, it's a funny looking R, but it is an R, Nemandum. So that is the end of riddle 60. This is the start of the husband's message. I can do this correctly. The husband's message starts, new itch on Sundaran. Okay, so if we look back to that, new itch on Sundaran. This is the only surviving copy of these two poems. It's in the Exeter book. And that is the indication that that is the start of the poem. No title, nothing. Okay, so when editors of the Exeter book are starting, they're saying, I think this is the start of a new poem. Got a bit of a problem here, because that's a great big hole in the manuscript. Anyway, we'll, we'll bypass that. And I think the poem runs on, runs on, runs on. Now, looking at that, if we're following that rule, that that's the end, and that rule, this is the start of another poem. But it isn't. The husband, that's line 15, or line 16 of the husband's message. So, modern editors are making the decision about where a text begins and ends. And it may be wrong. You can read another poem starting there. You could read that that is part of this poem, and this is just an attempt by the scribe to indicate where they think there's some sort of break in the poem. So a lot of decisions go on here. Other things which I, I've pointed out many times, of course this is verse, but note how it runs on and on and on on the line, so it's set out more like you would think of prose. There's some nice bits of punctuation here and here, but there's very little punctuation in the poem, so all the punctuation you get is, there's some capitalisation there, is inserted by modern editors. And the other thing, it's, it's, I don't know if I've got an example here, but what you will also see if you start to work on these, yeah, here's a good example, Ichge, Ijja, well that's not, that's I-C, I, and then that's Yahatan. Word division doesn't always work. You see there's a gap there and a gap there, because the scribes 
possibly didn't recognise word division or weren't as concerned about it as we would be nowadays. So manuscripts are very important. Looking back to the manuscript itself may lead you to other conclusions about the text. So, fingers folded me, so something's happening and things are being folded, and then a man bound me and he scratched skin over me and adorned me, so a nice little riddle to pick it up. So what happened when they were constructing a book? Usually they would take four sheets of parchment, so imagine that's a sheet, each of those is a sheet of parchment, that's been stretched skin, cut round the edges so it's square-ish, and you take them and then you fold them like that, and that's how you have your choir, and your choir has eight leaves. Okay? So that's why you might often hear a choir. A choir is foliated or paginated, and I'll show you what I mean by that in a second. But some choirs have different sheets and some things, so you might have, an odd, you might have nine leaves in a, in a choir and so on or something like that. So why is this important? Because during different periods of, or in different, and at different monasteries, they constructed books slightly differently. So we start looking at the code ecological evidence and going, well, actually, I think that's from this monastery here and I think it was written or composed at this point which is absolutely key when we're trying to place the termination date of the text. So, they would have bindings. This is um, a wooden binding. Or they use wood wrapped in leather, as you can see. And then they would sort of try and strap it. And then into these would go these stitched into the choirs. And this is the binding of the Exeter book. Uh, when they last looked at it, I think it must have been... 15 years ago or something like that, they, they looked at the binding. And those lines going down here, which you may think look like straw, those are actually the, the back, the edge of the choirs. So that's, there are loads and loads of choirs in the Exeter book. And sometimes, of course, they may have put the choirs in the wrong order. Or sometimes you may get a book and you, let's say that's the book with the manuscript opened like that, and that's really, really dirty, as is that one, but the next one are clean. Well, that would imply either that book was left open at that time, or this choir and these choirs were put together at some later date, because people did find manuscripts later. So, imagine this is an opening of a manuscript. That's your verso, that's your recto, if you're foliating. And what that means is every page... Artists. So that would be folio 1, folio 2, folio 3. And to distinguish between the folios, you say if it's a recto or verso. Why? Well, this is kind of when you may look up a poem and it says it's in the Exeter book SF36R to SF whatever, 38V. That's what that's saying. So that you can then go to that, that manuscript and completely look at it. Occasionally you see pagination, and that's what we get in modern books, where it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven inches, numbers either side. And you'll often get a mixture of the two, where, the, the, where we refer perhaps to the foliation, and maybe sometime later on, many centuries later, someone's paginated it as well. So you have to sort of do duplication. Okay. The vellum itself, they didn't just get it and think, way well, off we trot and start writing on it. They tried to have a bit of order. There was, this, was a, this was an art, remember. And it's quite expensive to go around slaughtering um, all your animals. Uh, I don't know how many go into a single book, but it's quite a lot. If you can imagine a book, say, that size, and that's stretched from, uh, let's say, a lamb 
you stretch it a bit, but you're going to use up a few lambs on a book. So, very valuable. So, they tried to sort of get some order in here. So, what they used to do, they used to do what they call, we call tram lines. So, that would give you your writing space. And then they would line along there. And that's a bit like what you would see in a, in a notebook. And to get those even, they would make little holes down the side, what we call pricking. And pricking you could do with a kind of like a needle, or they had a sort of device that looks like a bit of a, sort of like a pizza cutter, I suppose. So you have your handle, and it has little nails, and you run it down the edge, and you get equidistant, and then you ride it along. Sometimes they do it with pencil, sometimes they would do it with just a hard point. So all, all important, it all gives us evidence, it's what code of college to look at, and we have some ideas. And the other thing, if you ever go and have a look at a manuscript, sometimes you'll see this, but it's a lot easier if you actually touch a manuscript. You can distinguish between the side of the skin that was on the outside, the hair, and the side that was on the inside of the animal, the flesh. Because when you look at it, or when you run your fingers on the hair side, it's quite coarse, because it's got hundreds and hundreds of little holes where the hair grew out. The other side is very, very smooth. And again... That gives us evidence because some monasteries might have put hair opposite flesh, hair opposite flesh, others hair, hair, flesh, flesh. So we can put all this evidence together. I know it kind of sounds boring and dull, and it is when you start to do it sometimes, but it's giving us evidence about a period we knew very little about. It's It's a doddle to go into the English faculty library and pick a book down off the shelf and look at the front page and get the bibliographic information. I know this is the third edition of a book that was originally printed in 1926 in London by these people. Da-da! We've just got a manuscript and we've got to place this evidence. So every little bit helps. So here's an example. Hopefully you can see the lines ruled. This isn't an Anglo-Saxon manuscript, but you can see the lines ruled there and across. Here they've actually, it looks like they've used um, very faint ink or possibly a coloured coloured lead or something like that. But again, there are lines there. This is Anglo-Saxon. This, who knows what they did here because someone forgot to cut it up. But one can only imagine that either it was a single scribe sitting here and then he'd rotate it round like in a Chinese restaurant or we had four scribes who were doing some sort of like communal get-together and they'd all write this bit but it's got the lines here but someone oddly didn't cut it up so maybe they died here's pricking you can see it quite evident on that one you have to be have a look at the manuscripts in the British Library if you really squint you'll see it you can see it even on the next one nice um, script here that isn't Oh, how do you write an S? I've got it backwards. Let's rub it out. That is coming through from the other side. It's what we call bleeding because skin is very porous. If you write on it with an ink, it's going to seep through. And that's what happens with those. And I'll show you more examples of that. Okay, finding old English manuscripts. Apart from on eBay, how do you do it? Well, we've probably found them all, although there is, there is exceptions. Go into the English Faculty Library and you'll see the early English manuscripts and facsimile series and you can have a look at printed books which show you the manuscripts. I'm going to tell you which manuscripts you might want to look at. Obviously, they're all held in libraries. They used to be held in monasteries, but thanks to Henry VIII, 
not anymore. They all got dispersed. Private collectors held them and then private collectors gave them back to libraries of, in this case, universities that are founded by monks. So anyway, it's all circular. And you get the shelf mark. So this is Oxford Bodleian Manuscript, Junius 11. Junius 11 is one of the four poetry manuscripts and it's held in the bod. And that's, if you went up and said, I'd like to have a look at this, you'd write that down and they'd tell you to get stuff. Where we, you don't have to do all this and start scouring all the libraries of the world, fun though it would be, because Neil Kerr in 1957, I think it was, produced a catalogue of manuscripts containing Anglo-Saxon, um, published by OUP. And what you'll see if you look through that is the main collections are in the British Library, which is where the Cotton Collection ended up, Cambridge Corpus Christi College, where the collection put together by Archbishop Parker in the 16th century put up, and here at the good old Bod. Those are the three main areas. But there's bits and bobs everywhere. Needless to say, the Americans have bought loads, so there's some over there as well. But many of them are now digitally available. Um, have I got it up? Yeah, so if you go to Image Ox Ak Ak, and you'll see early medieval manuscripts. The Bod has put up quite a few of these. Um, somewhere down here is all of Junius 11. Where are you? It seems to be... Is it done alphabetically? Yeah, so there you are. Genesis, Exodus, Daniel and Old English although I possibly dropped out. Anyway, you can go and have a look at the entire... You can even turn the little pages. So, they are available. I think the only one that I haven't seen is the Vicelli book. We'll come on to that. So, if you look at Care, this is what you get. As you can see, it's a, it's a great fun bedtime read. But this is how he describes the Beowulf manuscript. So he thinks it's written century 10th or 11th century. Obviously, he's not pinning things down too much. Cotton Vitellius A15, blah, 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 the Beowulf manuscript, etc., etc. And then he gives you the contents of the manuscript. So, homily on St. Christopher, Marvels of the East, Letter of Alexander, and then 3,182 lines of illiterate verse beginning Hwatwe Garden and Yardaigam, Beowulf. Now, this is obviously quite handy for people if you come in the other end, you say, well, where is the Beowulf manuscript? And you look it up and it'll tell you where it is. But what's also interesting about this, and this really wouldn't take you long, it's just a quick tip, don't, you don't have to use care. Go away and have a look at the manuscripts of the text that you're studying and what else is in the manuscripts. Now, with Alfred's Life of St. Edmund, it's going to be saints' lives. But when you start looking at the dream of the root, what else is in there? Because someone put those texts together in that period for a purpose. So don't read the dream of the rude in isolation. Think, well, there's a load of other homilies here and there's other poems in here. So what was the purpose of that? No anthology is done without a political purpose and this period was no different. So, the wonder is in the Exeter book. Everything's in the Exeter book, but is there a reason for that? The Battle of Molden got burnt, doesn't survive, it's just in a transcript. Dreaming the Rules in the Vicelli Manuscript, Beowulf, Beowulf. Deed on Cadman, as with prose, survives in many manuscripts, as does Life of St. Edmund. They're both prose. Poetry only survives once, and usually in those four manuscripts. Uh, prose, there's multiple copies. So, Bede, there's two in Cambridge, two in London, two in Oxford. Alfred's, there's one in Cambridge, three in London, one in Oxford. Survivals of that text. Which, of course, goes you to show that there were many, possibly many more copies of this made. And they were more important. Who knows? 
So, what not to do with manuscripts, and I'll show you an example of all of these. Um, the only one I won't, well, I won't show you the example of sweating them, um, because that was something I did when I was a student. I didn't sweat on it, I was reading a manuscript and a, it was hot. And this blob landed on the page. Uh, anyway, it, let, we won't tell you what manuscript that is, but this is a, a clip of film, I think. If it springs to life, thank you, PowerPoint on what not to do from Bodleian CCTV footage. It's pretty good that. You do have to wear gloves, or you should wear gloves when you're handling manuscripts. So anytime you see TV companies go in and start on the page, scream, sue them. Um, you shouldn't touch the manuscript with a human hand because of all the chemicals and sweat, as I did, gives off. Okay, so here's an example of what not to do with them. That's what the manuscript looks like in real life. Burnt to a cinder. This is one of the, this is Otho, one of the cotton collection. You can see it's not in very good shape. Sort of thing you'd expect to find in a cave in Syria or something like that. That's an Anglo-Saxon manuscript. Do you just look at that and go, heavens to Murgatroyd, what am I going to do with this? Well, the Victorians worked out that if you poured chemicals on it, you would get the writing come up, which is great for that hour and then the chemicals start eating into it so that was a bad move but what we have now is ultraviolet light so if you got that you put it under an ultraviolet lamp and all that would appear and that's how you can reconstruct what's on damaged bits of paper such as the Beowulf manuscript you'll find holes I've shown you more examples this isn't this is the best I haven't found a picture of a wormhole and the worms eat the stuff because it's flesh of course so they like eating flesh it's just flesh slightly stretched it's like crisp flesh so, um, so that isn't, it's a funny shaped worm, but anyway, you can imagine a wormhole. Wormholes are quite useful though, because if you've got a folio, let's say we've got three folios, and you've got the worm, chomp, 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 eating in there, and the hole is there, chomp, 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 but it's not there, either it's a magician, and it somehow passed through physical matter, or someone stuck that page in later. So, don't diss the worm. But, the moth riddle tells you all about that. Okay, so the ruin Exeter book, well, we've seen lots of damage like here. That has impacted on the text, so text is missing. So that is something we'd be worried about. Here, someone has taken a page and decided to wash it. Very clever, because what they want to do, they thought, oh, there's a load of old English or rubbish on here. Let's just scrub it clean and use it again, because vellum's very expensive. So sometimes you come across this, palimpsests. Here, this is just act of wanton vandalism. Some later scribe, code of person putting a book together, thought, um, oh, what's all this stuff? Oh, it's that old German-Dutch stuff. We don't need that. Let's cut it up into strips. And I've got some pages which are getting loose, so I'll stick it down there. And you find them binding strips. So even when you've found the manuscript, you can go and find a manuscript from a much later period, and there's a strip like that. And you think, what the hell's that? It's clear on that side. You, you try and lift it somehow. You might find old. I found some in Bodley, which was two pages stuck together, if you can imagine. Clear on that side, clear on the other side, but in the middle there was Old English, and I shone a torch through and uh, found it. So it's still out there, keep looking. Um, very badly bit of damaged manuscript here, as you can see, completely ripped and torn. That's just a fragment, which is that maybe all we've got to go with, and good luck to you. Okay, so do look after them. We study them. But more importantly, what we do is transcribe from them and we produce the editions which you know and love. And that is another important step in the process. So, handwriting. 
A bird's feather, a quill, often moved over my brown surface, sprinkling meaningful marks, i.e. words. It swallowed more wood dye and again travelled over me, leaving black tracks. A beautiful way to describe writing. Not just someone wrote on me. It kind of gives the real away. So that's when we move into paleography. And here we're looking at the handwriting, abbreviations used by the scribes, when a scribe stops and another scribe picks up, etc. And we talk about handwriting, we use definitions and terms for handwriting, and I'm going to show you these, but what we generally say is Anglo-Saxon minuscule is the term used to describe the handwriting in Anglo-Saxon manuscripts. But they also use a different style of handwriting when they were writing Latin. And if you ever look at a manuscript, you'll see it does leap out. Now, for those of people who are really, really interested in this, you can even date the handwriting. Now, this is what's called pointed minuscule, square minuscule, and round minuscule. Now, you've got to have a good eye, I'm sure you'll agree, because somehow you've got to work out why that's called pointed, and that's more squarish, and that's more rounded. But believe you me, there are people out there who can do it, and do it a lot better than me, and that would indicate that it's from the early 11th century, 10th century, 9th century, just by the handwriting practice. That's a really, really good book by Jane Roberts. It's actually my paleography course, because I was taught by Jane, but it's got tons of images of handwriting all through the ages, and just describes them for English manuscripts up to 1500. So a paleographer would really get excited about this, the fact that that was originally an A, and someone's got in and fiddled about with it and tidied it up, and now it's an N. Paleographer would also be kind of interested in this. You may think, what? Um, can anyone see anything there? You can see a face. You're going mad. <laughs> no, there is a face there. But someone, I don't know what, it's an angel, but it looks like a sort of teddy boy to me. But anyway, someone started to draw this, right? I'll outline it. I'll come back, I'll paint that in, and forgot, but it's still there. So they would be interested in that, and we'll come on to illustration in a second. We'll come on to illustration now, actually. That is a second. Okay, manuscript illustration. We get a lot of illustrations in manuscripts, and it is important. And it is important for you because it links into things like the Dream of the Rood, the Rothwell Cross, that they did combine text with image. They weren't unafraid of doing this. But also, when you have a picture in a manuscript, it tells you someone's going to look at that picture. That tells you that the manuscript was there to be read or displayed. And this is all about, if you think, reception theory. What did the audience do? What did they know? Could they read and maybe the picture duplicate for that? So, we talk about two main styles of manuscript illustration. And to a certain degree, we talk about these two main styles of artwork in Anglo-Saxon England. We have Hiberno-Saxon art, a fusion of Irish or Celtic and Saxon art, which is the early period when those two uh, sort of cultures were mingling. And then we have the Winchester School from the mid-10th century, which I shall talk about both. But illustration isn't all wonderful, fantastic, lovely pictures. Sometimes we would class this as illustration. The fact that these entries here from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle are in red. You may not be able to see that, but they are, and that capital H is in a sort of funny colour. So we'd be interested in that, but I think I've mentioned this before, because you possibly do the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Here, a Edward King, wah, 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 here means refers to that date, which means that whoever was looking at this was reading it, because they were putting the two things together, which tells you about literacy. This is illustra uh, illustration, daubing, 
There's a kind of gold in that as well. This is the Thermo Lupi ad Anglos by Wolfstan. You can see the uh, foliation up there. This is more illustration. Perhaps this is perhaps something you, you'd expect. This is um, the Wonders of the East, I think. So it's a travel book telling you if you go out there, you're going to meet horrible things. And that's the type of horrible thing you'll meet. And this is the type of horrible thing you meet, a two-headed man. So either people who couldn't read would look at that and go, what's that? Oh, I'm not going out there. Or people who could read, and this is an attempt to illustrate what they're reading. Again, text and image. Now, this is, this is kind of odd. This is from a Psalter. It's a lovely illustration. But what they try to do in this Psalter, and it goes throughout the Psalter, is illustrate every bit of the psalm that they're reading. So, the beasts of the field shall drink. There probably is some creatures drinking somewhere. Uh, wine may cheer the heart of man. There's a little shindig going on. And they may make the face cheerful with oil and bread may strengthen the heart. The high heels are full of hearts. There's one. Um, he hath the moon. The moon is up there in the sun. The young lions roaring after their prey here. So someone has tried to take the psalm and draw a little picture of it. Again, why? Is it because the people who couldn't read would just look at that? Is it the people who would read would look at that and get more information? So on. Okay, Hiberno-Saxon art, the type of stuff that you see in Glastonbury hippie shops and everyone says, oh no, it's just Celts, it's not just Celts, intellects was quite a Germanic scheme. And the, the best example of this is the um, Lindisfarne Gospels. So I'm just going to show you a bit about the Lindisfarne. So if you go to the British Library, but you don't even have to go to the British Library, you go to their website, you can get the entire Lindisfarne Gospels online and turn the page. But just marvel at the intricacy from that period. Anyone ever tells you that these were the Dark Ages, point them at the Lindisfarne Gospel. At the other end, mid-10th century, we have the Winchester School of Art, which is, as you can see, noticeably different. Centres on the school under Atterwald of Winchester, and this comes out from the Benedictine Revival. So here we're seeing influences not from the Celts, but from the um, Carolingians and the Byzantines originally. So this is uh, Noah's Ark. And you can see they've tried to cram in as many animals as they can. There's a poop deck there. And there's, here we have Noah. As you can see, there's Noah talking to one of his sons. But types of things we'd see is realistic folds in clothing, etc. Animation of the figures. Not that sort of zoomorphic linking and interlacing that we got earlier. Okay. So very briefly about manuscript illustration. It's great fun though. Do have a look at what they used to draw and things because it tells us all kinds of things. Fashion, um, artifacts, you know, it's, it's our film of that period. Let's move on to a bit about scribes. There is this notion that there is a thing called an author and everyone will tell you there is an author or he is dead if you get to later on. Well, this is thrown up in the air with Anglo-Saxon England because there we know there are authors, we know the names of a few of them. And in this case, here's Alfrich. Possibly, this is Alfrich's own handwriting because it reads like an insertion by an author. But Alfrich and many other people were, were concerned about this notion of authorship. He says, look, I've written this down. I don't feel any ownership over it, but don't change it because you might change the message. And what we find in Anglo-Saxon England is that people were quite at liberty to change a text. They were quite happy to. So this notion of authorship that we cling to desperately in, mo in modern literature is not there in medieval literature. And it's, it's a real question for us and a challenge for us. So 
We have an author. Let's see. This is kind of how we think. Let's take a piece of prose like Alfred's homilies. He produces his master copy, perhaps in his scriptorium. A load of scribes make copies of that master copy. Then they're sent out and other scribes make copies of that master copy, make copies of that master copy. Now, as this is, these are all human beings in here, we get scribal errors. So maybe his survives and his survives, but they're going to be possibly two different texts because they may have introduced an error and so on. But more importantly, a scribe felt completely at liberty to alter the text, even in minor ways, to reflect the local circumstances of the contemporary events because they did not feel there was an authorship there. Think of this another way. Imagine if someone presented you with the edition of Dickens' Great Expectations. Would you feel at liberty to start inserting paragraphs or say, ah, I don't think you wrote this very well. Let me change it around. You wouldn't. Authorship is cemented in modern literature. It wasn't there. So the struggle to find the author is very difficult. The struggle to find the author is made impossible when you think that perhaps this is the Beowulf scribe but what happened before? Maybe it was multiple poems stitched together a couple of hundred years before and then they were performed different each night, each night. So the Beowulf poem that we have written down is a performance of Beowulf, not the only performance. And Beowulf itself may be multiple texts put together. However, the editors, people like Bruce Mitchell and Fred Robinson, God bless them, and people like that have problems because they do have surviving manuscripts. But what do they do? How do they try and get to the authoritative text? And is it at all possible? Well, you may think this is only a problem for medieval literature. It ain't. One of the most famous poems of English literature from the 20th century, Wilfred Owens Dolce et Decorum Est, never published in his lifetime. When he died out in 1918, when they went through his papers, they found these four versions of it. As an editor, someone has to make a decision which is the latest one, which is the nearest to the poem that Owen was trying to produce by the end. Now, you'd start playing detective work. For example, that one has nothing under the title. That one had to Jesse Pope, crossed out to a certain poetess, that one just has to a certain poetess, so that probably follows that, and you start piecing the evidence together. So even in modern editions, you have this problem. That's why if you ever read that poem throughout the editions of the 20th century, it changes. So this is what you have to do. You collate manuscripts. But first of all, what you do is you transcribe manuscripts. And I thought I'd just in a few minutes just give you a chance to see if you can transcribe a manuscript. What you would do, supposing you find the text you're interested in and you say it's in multiple five or six manuscripts, what do I do? Well, first of all, you copy down the text from each of them, which again might introduce a scribal error a thousand odd years later. You would check them at least though. You copy them down and that's what we call transcribing. Then you would collate them and come up with uh, your view of what the most definitive edition is. Copying down from Anglo-Saxon manuscripts may sound bloody impossible, but it isn't, actually. It is quite easy. It's a very, very nice, tidy script that comes through the manuscript, and it is, it is readable. So if you have a look, let's have a look at the top line. So perhaps you can see there's an S and an E, S, and then there's an M, A, N, Saman. Then there's a funny, bizarre letter there, which I've given you. It's just like a long S. 
Saman, S-E, that's the Ev, do you remember the Ev, which you would have seen in manuscript, Fe, Fijeth, and so on and so forth. So, starting to transcribe this is actually not that difficult. H-A-L-I-G-E, B-L-O-D, punctus, or a full stop, S-E, P, no, it's a W, that's the win, U-N-A-S, O-N-M-E. And I think probably, if you have a look at these slides later, you could have a go at writing that down. You write it down letter by letter. If you can't work one out, you come back. Can anyone see any words there they think they recognise? Okay. H. Harliger blood. Yeah, holy blood. Where? Sorry? Uh, second, line on the right. second line down or up? Uh, up <laughs> yes. C. Win. Ash. Ez. Quas. Quoth. As you would get later on. He quoth this said. That? that or that? Yeah. Which is what? Bread. Good. Yeah, not, lo- not laughter. Um, Clough. H-L-A-F. Loaf. Right, let's give you it, just so you can... It's actually quite readable. I'm saying it's quite readable, because when you get to later periods, it's not. You get to Gothic script, and it's a nightmare, and then you get to secretary hand, and you just you want to go home screaming. Um, but it is quite regular. On, O-N, Minum, Yaminda, so on. Anyone guess what it is? The Last Supper. Yeah. So the man, he who eats my body and drinks mine holy blood, he wooneth, lives, dwells in me, and I am in him. He blessed, so there's no closing of direct speech, he blessed the bread before his suffering and dealt it to his disciples and thus says... Eat this bread, it is my leech, my body, that's where you have leech gates in churches, and doth this in minum memory, in my memory. Eft, again, he blessed wine in a chalice. Not impossible. Well, you may think it's impossible. You've only been looking at this stuff for a few weeks. But, honestly, it's not that impossible. Oh yeah, You know the text, or you may have heard the text, but it, it is readable and it is doable. So when you go to the British Library, if you go, have a go at writing down what you think is there. Now, it comes impossible when you get this and someone else says, oh, hey, you've done your edition, I've just found another bit tucked in a drawer in Spain somewhere, and then you have to sort of work out, well, what's the difference between this version and that version, and which is the right one, and should I make changes? Did both scribes make an error? So you collate them. Like that. Okay, so some important points just to sort of bring to a bit of a conclusion. Manuscripts will be referenced throughout the books and editions you use, so do have a look. You don't want to write at length on manuscripts in, in the exam, although there will be an option to do that. But, you know, bear this in mind that we're not dealing with the print world, we're dealing with the manuscript world. And scribal practices throw up a lot of issues about authorship. 
So I just thought I'd finish, and this, there's a lot on these slides, so go away and download them with some top tips for you if you're download, if you're download, if you're writing essays and things like that. If you are asked to research a text or author, now if your tutorials have told you this, or tutors, apologies, I'm just repeating what they said. This is going to be my route. I would have a look at the Old English Course Pack because it's got some pretty good reading list there and some of the articles are online. My books to start with are The Cambridge Companion to Old English Literature, Blackwell's Encyclopedia of Anglo-Saxon England, History of Old English. Have them to hand whenever you're set any topic. Falk and Cain is probably the most recent one you'd look at. Okay, you would start looking at editions. So if I or someone set you a commentary on a text, go to the English Faculty Library or wherever and find the editions. There are multiple editions on that text because they will all have made different decisions about the text as I've just told you because they're in manuscripts. You can go to OLIS and I don't know if you've tried this, creating dynamic reading list. It's quite handy because you can have a little web page stored in your machine that tells you when the books are in or out. If you are doing a real bibliographic search, you don't have to look through tons and tons of stuff. Uh, Greenfield and Robinson in 19, the early 70s looked at all the publications up to that point and listed them under a text. So the Wanderer, that was everything that was published. Up to, or from that point onwards, you look at a journal called Anglo-Saxon England, which is on the shelves, and again, that would have all the text. But don't do that. Go online, go to the Old English Newsletter Bibliography, browse it, type in Dream of the Rude, and it will give you all the key publications on that text up to 2005, I think it is up to now. Brilliant book. Do go and look at this because it's context, context, context. Go and look at Calder and Allen's Sources and Analogues of Old English Poetry. You would look up the poem and then it would give you in translation key texts from patristic writers, from other contemporary writers, which show you that the poem wasn't written in isolation. Well, you can have a look at that if you wish, but it's, it's full. And then, there, of course, there's many articles online. I'm sure you've been trained in all of this, so I won't bore you with that. If you're researching a theme, do everything I've just told you. There's some nice books called Basic Readings. There's Basic Readings on Prose, Basic Readings on Manuscripts, Basic Readings on Kuhnewolf. It's a collection of the key articles on many of those issues. As I've mentioned before, go to the online thesaurus. Type in the term, the modern English term you're trying to look at. Pride, arrogance, devils, kings, whatever. And it will give you all the old English words for that. And then you go to the Old English corpus and enter the Old English words and it will then tell you where they are. Now you can't go away and read them all. You're not PhD students. But at least you could say, if you're making a point, this is where it is also used or in this text. Well, I know you're going to say, well, I don't need any of that because Wikipedia's got it all um, or Google will find it all. Well, it'll find some of it and won't find most of the deep stuff, but it will also find a lot of rubbish, okay? So I've had a look at the Wikipedia article on Alfrich. Well, the last time I looked at it, it was wrong. It may be right now. It may be wrong again. So be very careful if you rely on that. I'm sure you wouldn't. So that's what I've tried to do in this lecture series. It's been short, but I've tried to give you the background stuff that can go into your essays, historical social context, giving you a bit about the text, Tacitus, etc., dating of a text, 
social structures, religious context and manuscript context and put that all together and hopefully it will give you a better understanding of the Anglo-Saxon world but you won't need that because you're going on to do course two because every medievalist would. But remember, use the Old English course but I keep telling you that but do use it because it is there and it's free and I keep correcting it so I'm, you know, I'm fed up. So, also, in the paper, only 3% do the unseen translation option. Now, you may think you know why that is, and I could probably guess myself, but I think the correlation is those 3% all get first, so do have a look at it. Go and have a look on Oxam at Path Mod 3A papers. Have a look at the unseen text. Say, well, let's have a bash at this and see how your translation works, because they're generally quite simple texts. So don't dismiss it as something you can't do. That's my email. If you have any questions between now and the exam, let me know. Or any questions, well, about Anglo-Saxon, not about anything else, about Anglo-Saxon, then fire away and I'll do my best to answer them. And good luck. Thank you very much.